Non-invasive prenatal tests or NIPs are prenatal screening methods that involve analysis of cell-free DNA in maternal blood. Prenatal screening for sex chromosome aneuploidies has become readily available through the expanded panel of non-invasive prenatal tests that are commercially available. NIPs became commercially available first in 2011 and have been now introduced in more than 60 countries around the world. And of course, it's now mainstream obstetrical practice. Initially offered as a secondary screen for pregnancies with a high probability of fetal chromosomal anomalies, NIPS is now often recommended as a first-line screening test for the common chromosomal aneuploidies. Initially, NIPS was available to screen for trisomy 21, 18, and 13, but of course this has now expanded to include, separately, the fetal sex chromosomes and their aneuploidies. Now, people do order NIPS tests to see what they're having, and that's okay. Those are very accurate. However, when the NIPS test result for sex chromosome abnormalities comes back atypical or with a frank abnormality, there's some very important clinical pearls that we have to keep in mind and share with the patient. Yeah, this is a real-world scenario, and I'm going to give you the exact real-world case that we had in our practice in just a moment. So I thought this would be a great podcast topic because if the cell-free DNA shows 46XX or 46XY, that's typically very reassuring and people are happy. The accuracy of that for gender is extremely high. However, if they show anything else but that for sex chromosomes, meaning a no-call result for sex chromosome issues, I'll explain that in a minute, or a true sex chromosome abnormality, we have to remember some huge, huge issues here regarding that as opposed to autosomal trisomies. So in this episode, let's talk about NIPS, sex chromosome abnormalities, and its vital clinical pearls. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves really fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Well, everyone, before I start our topic here, and let me just say lots of clinical pearls in this one, because it's stuff we do so often, isn't it? I mean, cell-free DNA, and we know what to do with um, with, with that, you know, trisomy 13, 21, uh, 18, I get that, and of course you can do the expanded, um, but when something comes back as a sex chromosome issue, and remember, that's a separate, you have to click that box, you have to check that box as a separate offering, because uh, that's like a bonus, that's an add-on, all right? Um, and, and something comes back normal, great, but if something comes out off, we're like, ew, well, what does that mean? And I'm going to give you the exact case in, in our scenario here in just a minute. Now, um, two things to note. I am not talking about, and the, and the topic uh, focus here is not when the result is, 46XX or 46XY, and is that accurate? Because the short answer is super accurate. I mean, based on who you read, it's anywhere from like 99.9% um, to uh, a lower end of 98.9%. So it's still really good, all right? Even though there's some placental mosaisms and it happened to us, and we reported it to that company. Let's just say what it is, not throwing anybody under the bus and not a sponsor. But we, we had, uh, you know, we talked with the medical affairs for Natera. I'm like, man, this, this couple's like freaking out because they planned for 
a girl, and that definitely ain't no girl. I mean, it's not even ambiguous genitalia. That was a that, that's a full on boy, uh, and so things happen. That's why there's limitations to this. All right. But those things aside, uh, when the gender uh, through suffering DNA is a straight up by the book 46XY, 46XX, that's cool. It's when there's something else that it results that we're like, whoa, and the brakes come on. All right. So that's the first disclosure. First disclosure is we're not talking about their normal reads. We're talking about either a no call for sex chromosome issues, which is different uh, then they no call for the autosomal trisomies. I'm going to talk get into that in a minute. Uh, or when something comes out frankly abnormal, like oh my goodness, it could be Kleinfelter or it could be Turner's, which we'll get into in a minute. All right. So there, there's big caveats here. And while nobody says that self-free DNA anymore, nobody says this uh, for autosomal trisomies is controversial. It's pretty legit. It's, it's mainstream practice. It's super accurate. It's, it's definitely first line now. It's, it's, it's gone up in the ranks here. Um, but self-free DNA nips testing for sex chromosomes. Woo! You're talking about playing with some some controversial stuff here because there's some countries that are like, no, we're not doing that. Uh, unless there's a, you got to really know why, and you have to have a good reason why. Not everybody agrees. There's also some big ethical issues involved here, and you're like, ethical? What's ethical about this? I'm gonna explain it, man. I'm telling you, a lot of commentaries on the ethical debates on cell-free DNA for sex chromosome issues. What crazy? So I'm gonna get into that now. Those are all the podcast topic disclosures. Now, I have a personal disclosure. The personal disclosure is, guys, I don't feel 100%. I mean, I was supposed to do a podcast yesterday, and I told Mike, it's not happening, brother. It's not happening. I only got one nostril that I'm breathing out of. I got some weird allergy thing. I've swabbed myself, and it's not covid um, I, I don't think it's RSV. Uh, I think it's just um, either allergies or a cold. All right. But I am taping this with one nostril and one tympanic tube, one, <laughs> one eustachian tube that I think is blocked so I can barely hear myself. So if I'm screaming into this thing, Mike will have to even out that audio. But yeah, something is going on in my upper <laughs> respiratory tract. And uh, I got, if I'm honest with myself, I just don't want to claim it. I'm not saying I'm not manifesting that. Uh, I, I actually think I got a little bit of, of a touch of atypical bronchitis. I got bronchitis. Ain't nobody got time for that. Oh, my goodness. Y'all remember Sweet Brown, <laughs> the poor lady. Her apartment burned down. And oh, my gosh. Internet, internet fame. Uh, from that bronchitis, ain't got time for that. And good for her. She she actually got so many donations from that. She deserved it, poor thing. Sweet brown. So for those of you who are not in the U.S., because I just got another message today from somebody in Australia. Oh, I love this podcast community. I mean, my goodness. I've, so our community, actually, our podcast family is growing for some reason with the Aussies um, and the Kiwis. So I, I love it. Um, you're always welcome to come visit me in Texas, as long as I don't got bronchitis. Anyway, for those of you who are not from the U.S. and you have no idea who Sweet Brown is, it's a simple Google search for Sweet Brown, I've got bronchitis, this poor lady. All right. My goodness, we have already derailed and we're just at the beginning. Okay, back on track before I give you our NIP result, of course, protecting HIPAA. Actually, I'm not going to give it to you, Natalie, one of our fantastic residents is going to do it. 
because uh, we ran into this case today, even though we had already talked about it as a group when it first popped up and the patient came back for follow-up. Um, and, and I'll tell you what we did in this particular case, but you may have seen this because it stumped uh, uh, one of our residents like, wait, what is going on here? Like, it's not normal. It's not abnormal. Basically, it's a no call, um, but it's the way that it says it. And so Natalie will give you that result here in a minute. And you have to remember that our due diligence as as a, as healthcare providers is we got to be honest and open with the patient and also, of course, disclose what the test showed and also not cause undue concern or stress, all right? Because a vast majority of the time, these are totally fine. But you can't leave it like that. Okay, so I'm going to get into that in a minute. But before we do that, let, let's, state, let's say it right here from the beginning. So we're, we're legit and evidence-based. Remember that non-invasive prenatal tests, though they are very good for autosomal trisomies, and they are very good for fetal gender, even though a commentary I read is, man, the molecular science uh, and technology for non-invasive prenatal tests is so deep and so delicate and so intricate that it really shouldn't be cheapened as a gender reveal tool. Wow. All right. So, okay, that's pretty harsh, but I'll give you that perspective in a minute. And and just so you know, I I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it's fine when the results come back one or the other, 46XX or XY. You're like, whew, at least I don't have to worry about that one because it should be pretty darn accurate for that, except for the one case that I'll tell you in a minute. Um, It's when the stuff doesn't come out right that you're like, oh, crap and i got to deal with this so i do like it i I think it's got a place you just have to understand its limitations and a big limitation of nips in general not just for the sex chromosome stuff is it has to be said i know you know it i absolutely 100 percent have to be in line with the college and the american college of medical genetics and smfm and international standards that nips is a screening test not a diagnostic test. Man, ACOG got mad at all of us uh, who are fellows of the college back in April of 2022. You remember that? So ACOG sent out a warning to providers, obstetrical providers, saying stop using this thing like a diagnostic tool. What are you all doing? That is chop a paraphrase, of course. But in that brief, ACOG stated, quote, cell-free DNA is the most sensitive and the most specific test for common fetal aneuploidies. However... It is not equivalent to diagnostic testing and has a potential for false positive and false negative results, end quote. But remember, having great sensitivities and specificities is absolutely wonderful, guys. That's fantastic. That's why it's first line for those common autosomal trisomies. But when it comes to sex chromosome abnormalities, that's not enough. So here's the first clinical pearl, and we're going to drop a lot of clinical pearls as we go here, is that for sex chromosome abnormalities specifically, because it has to do with pretest probability and prevalence, what's more important here, yes, sensitivity and specificity is fantastic. It's good. But what matters more here and what's very controversial with the sex chromosome stuff is positive predictive value for abnormalities. Remember I said not for 46XX or 46XY. That's different. That is very accurate. And those positive predictive values are very good. That's high accuracy. It's when there's an aneuploidy result, something is off, or it's a no-call result that those positive predictive values aren't very good. Okay? So that's, that's the big catch here is that that's different than autosomal trisomies. So let me just say it very clearly. The sensitivity and specificities, 
for any kind of abnormality with nips is exceptional. It's very good. But when it comes to sex chromosome issues, the, the, the ability for those to actually be correct has to do with background prevalence. Remember that, pretest probability. And that's where you kind of lose some points there on positive predictive value. So we're going to get into all of this, but that's the issue here. It's positive predictive value for sex chromosome abnormalities, not just for regular old straight up normal gender. Okay, so if it says 46XY, it should be fine. If it says 46XX, should be fine. It's when something is off that there is the rub, as Shakespeare would say. To drive home this point that even sex chromosome determination for gender, traditional old 46XX and XY are typically very, very good. I mean, approaching basically 100%, all right? Um, it's still screening, guys. So about three years ago, I was on with one of our uh, residents who's now gone and killing it in private practice, Dr. Uh, Clocky. Uh, I just messaged him today. Uh, we delivered a baby um, whose parents had bought everything pink because the cell-free DNA said, that little baby, that there's a girl. Okay, now, here's a catch. When, you, when we rely on cell-free DNA, we don't really put that much emphasis on ultrasound, right? Unless it's blaring, like, oh, there's a penis, or very, very clearly that's labia. I mean, we take a look for any real abnormalities, but with that guy with self DNA, we'll pick that up, and we kind of glance over that, all right? So that was missed also on ultrasound. So self DNA said girl, and that delivery, straight up boy. I mean, not like ambiguous genitalia, and no, we're not talking about... Um, uh, you know, androgenization of labia. I mean, that wasn't ambiguous. That's typically an ambiguous genitalia issue. This was straight up scrotum with testicles descended, a penis. I mean, it was like, the, it just nips was wrong. So, and it happens. And so the family was like, wait, what is happening here? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a big issue here. So you see how there's a little bit of confusion and now they were happy because everything was fine. Physically with the child, delivery was fine, but still they had prepared like the whole family for it's a girl when it's a boy. Now, that's easier to explain, right? Outside of ambiguous genitalia, genetic uh, female on a NIPS test and coming out a boy, that was just a potentially a false false read, all right? Placental mosaism. Um, there's cases where you should not get cell-free DNA testing, like if the mother is a transplant recipient. Did you all know that? Because, hey, there's other DNA in there. Um, so th there's times where you shouldn't get it, all right? Um, but it's easier to explain false positive NIPS female delivery to a boy uh, outside of ambiguous genitalia. Th the catch, guys, here's is again yet another clinical pearl. If the NIPS shows male, okay, 46XY, and that delivery, that's phenotypically a female, you got flags, Okay. Now, you're like, either it was wrong, which we're going to hope for, but remember the accuracy here for straight up 46XY and XX is very good. The question is, oh my goodness, is that AIS, androgen insensitive? Uh, because remember that the primary pathway is female, right? And then you have to turn on the SRY gene, uh, have a, a testicular development, have a DHT conversion uh, for the external phenotype to change to male, so is that an AIS issue or is it Swire syndrome, a defect in the SRY gene? So if it's genetic male with phenotypic female at delivery, that baby likely needs chromosomes. I mean, you got to figure out what's going on. So do you see how there's confusion there? Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not trying to over-concern anyone. 
46XX and 46XY are in general very, very accurate. Now, when I said we, you know, we called Natera, I'm like, hey, um, like we expected uh, a girl and uh, that baby surely is a boy. I mean, it's not ambiguous at all. Like, oh, we'll look it up. And like, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. It did it quality on the test, quality assurance. Like, I, it's false. I mean, it got it wrong. It's a screening test. To which my reply was, you don't say. Okay, so all to say, they are very, very good. But there are cases, and we had it in our own practice. Uh, Dr. Ross Clocky um, and spent a lot of time on the phone with these people going, and what, what is, I just want to make sure this doesn't repeat. Um, again, parents super happy because everything was fine. But it still kind of throws off the game. All right. So let's just leave that there. And now let's get into our specific patient result, which was the, um, the, the reason that we chose this as a topic. All right. So this is a obviously not a typical, hence the atypical NIPS result. Natalie, what, what was this patient's, of course, protecting HIPAA, but what was this patient's NIP result? Atypical finding on sex chromosomes, low risk for other conditions, fetal sex not available, fetal fraction 10.5%. This atypical finding, which involves the X chromosome, could not be further characterized and the origin could not be specified. This finding could also be due to normal variation and or confined to the placental tissue. Fetal risk assessment for monosomy X and fetal sex could not be performed. Genetic counseling with the option of comprehensive ultrasound evaluation and diagnostic testing for the suspected atypical finding should be considered for the fetus and patient. Okay, so just to recap, it was not uh, Kleinfelter, it wasn't Turner's, it wasn't 46XY or 46XX, it was nothing. It was, hey, um, we, we don't know what's going on, it, it's, it's just, we don't have a result, um, even though the fetal fraction was 10%. Okay, so, and we'll talk about fetal fraction in a minute. In general, most consider a, a normal fetal fraction to be at least 2% uh, or, or 4% based on which company you use. So this was clearly sufficient. It was 10%. So it's not a fetal uh, uh, cell fraction issue, all right? Now we're going to get into next steps in this particular case of what we did here in just a minute. But let's get back to some super important points that we have to make here um, about cell-free DNA as it relates to results in general and the sex chromosome stuff. Yes, we're going to get into this atypical result and what to do with that in a minute. But we've got to remind ourselves of some big facts here, some big clinical pearls. And even though we've covered this in the past, if you didn't listen to those episodes, it's all right. I got you. We're going to recap a couple of big things here. Just good for all of us to keep in mind and to remember, all right? First is that cell-free fetal DNA testing isn't coming from the baby at all. Now, it's coming from the fetal compartment, but that doesn't mean the fetus. Y'all get that? Huh? Now, let me explain. Let me explain. The fetal compartment is the hybrid collection of the components of the baby, the fetus, and fetal contributions to the placenta, right? And membranes. Remember that the chorion, amnion, all of that stuff is, is partially fetal-derived, of course, uh, and parts of the placenta. The placenta is a hybrid organ. So this comes from placental trophoblastic tissue, which is fetal-contributed through those cells' apoptosis. So yes, it represents fetal information, but not really coming from the fetus itself. So we got to remember that just as a good reminder. And as we tell the patients, it's not actually the direct baby's information, but it's by proxy. And, and that's okay. Second, as Natalie read in our report, let's talk about fetal fraction that we've just kind of alluded to in a minute. because we've, we've got new data about what could throw that off as well. All right. 
And in our case, it was around 10%. Fine. But remember that fetal fraction is a super important quality metric that can influence a NIP result. So a very low fetal fraction, you got to question, what's the accuracy there? That's why they, they do report that, even though internationally, there's no clear consensus of of what is a good fraction. As I mentioned, low is typically less than 2%, acceptable is 4% or more, but, but that varies by, by company and, and even by, by country. But in general, very low fetal fractions can give less accurate NIPS results. That's why they put that in there. So low fetal fraction uh, can throw off results or you could get a no-call result. Now, a no-call result is different than something that resulted. Okay, so if it resulted, good. You just got to remember, nothing's 100%. It's a screening test. And fetal fraction is just for you to go, well, I don't know, it's kind of low. Um, give the patient education about that. See if she wants other testing. Um, not repeat testing, just other testing, uh, um, like diagnostic testing, or leave it at that. However, a no-call result, a no-call result, or a failed NIPS is, is a different issue. Okay, A no-call result, you've got two different things to do there. The most traditional is to go, hey, this didn't work. We're calling it a day. And you just need to go either to a diagnostic test or get something else like a quad. Okay. Now, remember, because cell-free DNA is so accurate, that's high tier. If, if you get an abnormal autosomal trisomy NIPS, you can't offer a quad to double check. It doesn't work that way because you're taking a step down the rung of the ladder. Okay, But you can go up. So if your quad is abnormal for suspicion of downs and ultrasound is normal, you can escalate it up to a cell-free DNA. You can do that. But remember that you can't go from cell-free DNA to a quad. If, however, you get a no-call cell-free DNA, you can get an alternative screen like a quad because there was there's no result to begin with. Does that make sense? So you can get, if you have a no-call result, you can either um, go to another screening method or go straight to diagnostic. The traditional is just to go straight to diagnostic, although ACOG does allow that, and about 70 up to 80% of the time, you will get a result. Okay, so it's part of shared decision making. So shared decision making. So if you're asked that ever by a peer um, or a colleague or a patient, um, uh, hey, it's a no call result. What should we do? That depends on you. We can go for formal testing, CVS or amnio. Or if you would um, like to uh, retry, we can try one time. And if two fails, it's definitely no go from there. Okay, uh, or of course, get a quad or something else. So just something super important to to keep in mind. Also, remember that um, new data has shown that patients on anticoagulant therapy can actually have a higher chance of a no call result. So brand new stuff out there, just things to keep in mind that a no call does not mean that the baby has some issue at all. It's just a relative risk increase that potentially something is, is, is wrong there, right? So there is a correlation with no called or a failed NIP for autosomal trisomies and potentially a true genetic abnormality. That's why it's okay to repeat once, especially if it's a, if it's a cell fraction issue, um, or you could go to diagnostic test, all right? So the patient gets to choose. Podcast family, when I tell you that we try to give you stuff that's um, fresh in the news and current and clinically ap- applicable. I mean, we really are trying to do that, all right? Because this whole issue of anticoagulation and its association with lower fetal fraction and more indeterminate results came out, guess when? January 2024. 
right? So that's in the Gray Journal. Um, that is Shri. The first, first listed author is Shri, S-H-R-E-E. Uh, yeah, and that just came out in the Gray Journal. So, and again, it wasn't like a prospective study, definitely not an RCT. I mean, how did you do that? This was retrospective. But it just goes to show what others had suspected and others have kind of whistleblown already, that for those on anticoagulation, fetal fraction tends to be lower, which obviously tends to give a higher rate of indeterminate results, right? Yes, I'll post this link, of course, this reference on our reference list. Uh, But again, the title to this January 2024 publication is Anticoagulation Use uh, is Associated with Lower Fetal Fraction and More Indeterminate Results. That's the title. All right. Now, of course, that's for a no-call result for anything. That's overall, okay? But in our particular case, remember, um, it was a no-call for just the sex chromosome stuff. You see how atypical that is? It actually said, as Natalie read, hey, the other stuff was fine. It was something atypical here with the sex chromosome issues. So it wasn't like it was no-read overall. It was, you can either get a no-read period or a no-read for just the sex chromosome stuff. In this case, it was low risk for 13, 18, and 21. It was a atypical result just for the sex chromosome aneuploidies. That's a flag. Yes, I'm going to spoil it for everybody here just for a minute. Um, in the vast majority of cases, this is totally normal as well. But you can't leave it that way because it, it is a significant flag. Can't ignore it, but you can't freak out either. Okay. Now that we've set that aside, we're still building our case here. We're giving away a lot of building blocks, a lot of clinical pearls about uh, NIPs and autosomal trisomies, which brings us to our next clinical pearl. That Remember that autosomal trisomy is the most common aneuploidy overall in general. Okay, so autosomal trisomy is not triploidy, but trisomy. And that's not the sex chromosome ones, it's autosomal like 13, 18, 21. Then that's followed as a group by the sex chromosome stuff. All right. So thankfully, we've got much more accuracy for what's more common, which is 13, 18, and 21. That's why you get into issues with positive predictive value with the sex chromosome stuff. All right. But for the autosomal trisomies, NIPS is extremely good. I mean, it's very good. Hence, as we've already said, moves up to that first line as a screening and not to be abused as a diagnostic test. But following that is you get the SCAs. Now, in obstetrics, SCA stands for both sex chromosome abnormalities or aneuploidies and sickle cell anemia. So you got to figure out (laughs) what SCA you're talking about. In this case, if I say SCA, it's not sickle cell anemia. It is sex chromosome abnormalities or aneuploidy. Okay. Is that fair? Good. Because help me out, guys. I'm all loaded up on Benadryl as I try to record this. Man, what's in this stuff? Big clinical pearl here and why this is a little controversial on the ethics side. It is a a very active debate, and I'll get into that in a minute, with screening for SEA, sex chromosome abnormalities, is because uh, there are not really any, like, lethal issues. If there's something severe, right, the majority of those tend to be lost as abortuses. Um, and there's no real big morbidity, like, uh, potentially with uh, 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 trisomy 21. It's not a lethal issue, like 13 or 18. Um, so this is an issue. Plus, there's not one, like, distinct phenotype for some sex chromosome abnormalities as a group, like there is with autosomal aneuploidies. So super controversial here. Most abnormalities with sex chromosome abnormalities 
uh, are diagnosed from the postnatal, even later on in life, potentially with some um, delayed uh, cycles, like for primary amenorrhea. The point is, these aren't necessarily made prenatally. Um, and the majority of people, based on the uh, American College of Medical Genetics, who have these, um, don't even know it. I mean, because they're either such mild uh, uh, penetrants, or they're like, yeah, you know, um, hey, Aunt Sally's kind of tall and a little socially awkward, but whatever. I mean, you know, she's super functioning and has a job or whatever. Um, and and you may, we would never know unless you had specific testing. That's not my opinion, guys. All right. And I'm not being insensitive. This is fact that if you take a look at the Medical College of Medical Genetics, and I'm going to read you here some of the comments here about the ethical controversies, which are like, which are very easy. Like, look, this is not going to give them any major long term morbidity. Um, it's not going to give them life, shorter lifespan in general. Uh, and in, in the phenotype is super varied with one caveat. The only SCA that really has some true issues here, of course, we're talking about Turner syndrome, which uh, more times than not has some ultrasound features. The other sex chromosome aneuploidies typically do not. Okay, so Turner's is very unique as 45XO. Otherwise, the other sex chromosome abnormalities, SCAs, which we're going to point out in a minute, a kid could be born and you may not, you may not ever know unless they're specifically tested for another reason. Okay, so that's, again, a, a big clinical pearl there. And that's why it's controversial. And I'm going to get to that uh, as we get towards the end of the episode. And here's another little weird quinky dink and another weird fact um, that the Y chromosome for sex chromosome issues by cell-free DNA. Y chromosome, remember, is tiny. Okay, so the Y chromosome, because it's much smaller than all of the other chromosomes, including the X, no boy, there's some kind of sexist joke there. I don't know what I'm going there for. But the Y chromosome is very, very small. That could lead to some issues with Y chromosome determination. So if you get a no-call result for the Y you know, that's easier to explain a little bit because it has to do with its size in a cell-free DNA fraction. Um, if you get a no-call for the X, that's a little bit different, potentially a little bit more concerning. Like in our case, remember, it was a no-call for the X. It doesn't mean that something is wrong, still a screening test, but that's that's harder to explain away than if it was a no-call for the Y based on the actual size of the chromosome in cell-free DNA fractions. Moving on, the controversy with these NIPS tests has nothing to do with their fantastic sensitivities and specificities for autosomal trisomies, okay? And even their sensitivity and specificities for sex chromosome abnormalities is is pretty good. It's it's actually very impressive. It's over like 98%. But where things fall out here, guys, the clinical pearl is their positive predictive value. This was highlighted in a really good review on the subject from the journal Prenatal Diagnostics from June 2023. Yeah, just seven months ago. And this was the the title is and who it came from is it came from the International Society for Prenatal Diagnosis. And the title of this statement was the position statement from the International Society for Prenatal Diagnosis on the use of non-invasive prenatal testing for the detection of fetal chromosome conditions in singleton pregnancies, end quote. So it was from an international society, okay, so uh, a board of medical experts, not just for sex chromosome issues, which they obviously talk about, and we will summarize here, 
Um, but it only applied to singletons because twins has its own set of issues. And remember that uh, gender uh, 46XY or XX for twins, forget about it. It's just, I mean, you, you get a lot of conflicting things there. They're like not going to happen. So typically for singletons, right? That first author uh, was you. That's H-U-I. And of course, I'll post this reference as well. In this position paper, by the way, this is a really nice uh, uh, article. It'd be great for a journal club. A lot, I mean, lots of info here. But we're going to summarize the key points. But what a wonderful um, uh, journal club this would be for the residents. They they do highlight something from us in the U.S., the American College of Medical Genetics. Um, they give their positive predictive values for sex chromosome aneuploidies based on, on best reviews here, based on systematic reviews and meta-analyses, all right? Now, li- listen to these because they are much lower than they are for trisomy 13, 18, and 21, okay? So positive predictive values for the main autosomal trisomies they're hard to contend with and argue. They're they're pretty good. The sex chromosome issues, you're like, ooh, wow, is that what they are? It has to do with pretest prevalence. All right. So let me give you this again. This comes from a systematic review quoted by um, this international panel that was originally reported by the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. Here's what they say: the positive predictive value for monosomy X, guys, twenty six percent. So 26% for Turners. That's uh, low. (laughs) It's 50% for triple X condition, 47XXX. What, you know, I learned that as super female. People didn't like that term. It's like, it's offensive. I don't know about that. But 47XXX, now it just changed to triple X genotype. And then there is the positive predictive value is actually the best for 47XXY, all right? So for 47XXY, the positive predictive value there is 86%. And, and that's based on non-invasive prenatal tests for these, these main uh, sex chromosome abnormalities. If you heard that uh, genotype description, 47XXY, and you're like, wait, what the heck was that? I remember that. That's called, come on, guys. You can't forget this, right? That's Kleinfelter. So just like we know that uh, monosomy X uh, Turner's is uh, 45XO, don't forget that 47XXY is Kleinfelter. Tends to be the best for Kleinfelter at an 86%. Okay, but for monosomy X, which is more common than than Kleinfelter, the positive predictive value is 26 percent, guys. So and by the way, it's not just this one systematic review. There have been a lot of reports on this that are like we've got no beef with autosomal trisomies. But if there's something off on the sex chromosome aneuploidies screening test, don't forget, and two, remember the positive predictive value. So it's a huge difference here as compared to the autosomal trisomy stuff. That systematic review that looked at this, um, or one of the systematic reviews that looked at this, was published in the Journal of Personalized Medicine in 2022. uh, And that first author was Lu, L-U. And the title was Cell-Free DNA Screening for Sex Chromosome Abnormalities and Pregnancy Outcomes. 2018 to 2020 retrospective analysis. So you've got a variety of of data that all say the same thing. Even though the numbers may be different, um, they are all pretty impressive. Uh, They're impressively moderate, okay, to low as a positive predictive value for sex chromosome aneuploidies. Remember, that's not what our patient had. She had a no-call result for the X. That's different. 
All to say, don't take that to the bank. It's a screen. And the positive predictive values, even if something was abnormal, is just not that high compared to trisomy 18, 13, and 21. That's what I'm trying to make here. But wait, we've got more. As a quick way to put those numbers in perspective, here's something just to, to put in the back of your brain. And I love how this commentary stated this, quote, Although the sensitivity and specificity of cell-free DNA for sex chromosome abnormalities are high, the positive predictive values are only about 50% on average. The positive predictive value is higher for sex chromosome abnormalities with a supernumerary Y chromosome and lower for monosomy X. End quote. So remember that. We already talked about that. Because Y chromosome is so small, if you're counting a lot of them, that positive predictive value is probably pretty good because that's a hard one to pick up. So if you're finding a lot more of that, chances are that's probably more legit, which is why the positive predictive value is higher. And it's lower for monosomy X because there's a lot of different conditions that may find that. It could be patient's BMI. Um, it could be placental mosaism. So just take that for what it is. The American College of Medical Genetics has a nice reminder that even though most of these sex chromosome issues don't have something sonographically that's detectable, you can see something, and it's super helpful, for Turners, right? Monosomy X, that's where there could be some issues here with uh, increased nuchal thickness. You have some poten potential ultrasound findings uh, that go with monosomy X. So that's where that comes into play. If you have a NIPS that's suspected of, of 45X, that level two ultrasound is key. And that is one thing that we sent our patient to, of course, detailed anatomical survey. She needs to get a level two uh, to help risk stratify that in addition to offering a straight-up diagnostic testing with amnio, okay? Because she was at time for amnio had already passed kind of CVS time frame. So there is a role for ultrasound, but it's much more limited, specifically 45X. Podcast family, it's okay to listen to this so far and go, all right, positive predictive values, that's not great for this specific condition, right? Sex chromosome aneuploidies or abnormalities, fine. But oh, that's your opinion. I mean, yes, that's independent data. I get that. But what do professional societies say? Because we should be asking that. Well, I'm going to tell you. And the answer is, well, it depends who you read and where you live, because they are not uniform on this. Okay. Now, remember, as we've already stated, there's no beef with checking cell-free DNA for autosomal trisomies. It's the sex chromosome stuff that's a little shady and a little gray. Okay, now I'm going to give you these international guidance, including, of course, the U.S. So we can give you something from the U.K. Uh, and some guidance from Down Under, uh, both from uh, towards New Zealand and Australia. Oh, I just got a, a great message today from somebody in Australia. How great was this? I got great friends over there virtually through our podcast. And uh, this person said, hey, thank you for the episode. What about this topic, which we're going to already put on the list? Um, and I put somebody on. Um, but I, I also uh, wanted to say that your podcast helped me get through uh, maternity leave and kept me current. I'm like, that's fantastic. So anyway, what a great community we have. So having said that, let's now get into the varying opinions here from professional societies and nothing in the middle. OK, there's some that are all for it. They're like, okay, sure. Knock yourself out, I guess. And then others that are like, hey, put the brakes on this. Um, this is not a gender reveal party. Okay. So it is very, there's a dichotomy here. Let's get to it. 
Let's start with the home court advantage, of course, coming from the U.S. So let's start from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. The American College of Medical Genetics actually uh, likes to get it. I mean, it, it recommends it pretty strongly. This came out in... Uh, February of 2023. Guys, you all see that this is relatively recent, right? So this is their practice guidance from ACMG, the American College of Medical Genetics. The title of this publication is Non-Invasive Prenatal Screening for Fetal Chromosome Abnormalities in a General Risk Population, an Evidence-Based Clinical Guideline of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. So it's exactly what we're talking about. So you see, you just have different opinions here. ACOG's a lot softer. We can get into that in a minute. But ACOG says in their final conclusion, quote, ACMG strongly recommends non-invasive prenatal tests over traditional screening methods for all pregnant patients with singleton and twin gestations for fetal trisomies 21. 18, and 13, and strongly recommends NIPs be offered to patients to screen for fetal sex chromosome aneuploidy, end quote. So look, if you're doing it, no problem. That's why I said I, I do this. I think it's okay. You just got to know that there's some limitations with it. And, and if you're like, ha, oh, man, that's pretty strong. And, and it is a strong statement. I mean, they're like, yeah, just do it. But you just got to know what you're looking for. So when you read the whole document, they're like, it's not a diagnostic test. It is screening. ACOG said that. And we're about to talk about them next. But yes, go ahead and knock yourself out because information is information. And if something is off, hey, it just it's just going to trigger you to do something else to confirm that. So keep going and get a, diagnos uh, a diagnosis. So but remember, this is coming from the American College of Medical Genetics. So they like this stuff. So yes, ACMG as of February 2023 is like, yes, we like it. Go ahead and do it. Now, I was going to mention the American Society of Human Genetics when we talk about the naysayers, the no-go on it, okay? So you've got ACMG, who we just read. They're like, yeah, man, this is great. Woohoo! I mean, this, more info is better than no info. Just got to know what you're looking for. But then, in the same country, guys, the U.S., the American Society of Human Genetics, which is different than the American College of uh, Medical Genetics and Genomics, Okay, that's that's different. The American Society of Human Genetics guideline is different. They're much more cautionary and restrictive. All right. So ACMG is different than the ASHG. Oh, my goodness. All to say the American College of Medical Genetics and American Society of Human Genetics, a little bit different in their stance regarding NIPS for sex chromosome issues, just for sex chromosome issues, all right? So here's what the American Society of Human Genetics says about uh, NIPS test. Quote, expanding NIPS-based prenatal screening to also report on sex chromosome abnormalities and microdeletions not only raises ethical concerns related to information and counseling challenges, but also risks reversing the important reduction in invasive tensing achieved with implementation of NIP for aneuploidy and is therefore currently not recommended, end quote. Um, that's a lot of like words. Short of it is they're like, hey, I don't know, we're going to get a lot of false positives and it's going to increase the risk of invasive tests when this should be a non-invasive uh, uh, paradigm. That's basically what they're saying, okay? Now, yes, that was back in 2015, but it makes the point that uh, not everybody agrees. 
Oh my goodness, and if it couldn't be any more confusing, the ASHG, the American Society of Human Genetics, is in Rockville, Maryland. However, the ACMG, the American College of Medical Genetics, is in Bethesda, Maryland. So yeah, so Bethesda uh, or Rockville, both in Maryland, both genetic professional societies. Yeah, not confusing at all. ACOG takes a more neutral approach to SCA screening. Remember, not sickle cell anemia, sex chromosome aneuploidies. They're, they're, they're kind of like in the middle, okay? So as I said in the beginning, there's some that are yes and then no and then nothing really in the middle. Well, ACOG kind of fills that gap a little bit because their short uh, statement on it is, yes, it's out there. You got to be careful for some false positives. And um, the short line is screening test. So that's it there. But ACOG does actually say that there are some risks specifically for patients who have undergone organ transplantation um, because that alters um, maternal findings. So that's something that ACOG kind of throws in there as a little uh, side note, but helpful to know. This information from the ACOG is out of uh, practice bulletin number 226, which was back in 2020. Um, that just, again, is not a big topic here on the sex chromosome aneuploidies, except what we've already discussed, screening, be careful, and know when not to get it. The National Society of Genetic Counselors actually doesn't really have a lot of verbiage around screening for sex chromosome aneuploidies. It just makes the stance that all pregnant patients should have access to NIPs with appropriate pre-test counseling and post-test counseling in case of inconclusive or positive screen results. So they're like, hey, I'm just going to include all things NIPs, but doesn't really point out SEAs in general. Now, here's the joint statements from the Royal Australian and the New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the Human Genetic Society of Australia. They do take a, a similar approach to what we've just discussed in their recommendations. This joint committee views NIPS as an acceptable first-line screening test for fetal chromosome abnormalities, uh, of course, starting in the first trimester, and says that it should be available for all pregnant women. And that's great. It does also say that pre-test counseling and post-test counseling uh, need to be done for anything regarding sex chromosome abnormalities. That information was taken from their 2018 uh, consensus opinion. That's report number 59, again, 2018, the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, their prenatal screening and diagnostic testing for fetal chromosome and genetic conditions that's available online. So those are the ones that are like, okay, they'll give a little nod. They're not like gung-ho for it. But they're like, you're going to do it. Great. Just know the limitations. Talk to the patient and give them informed info. All right. So they're basically on the, yeah, okay, fine side. But then you have other locations, other countries and their professional societies that provide the Samuel L. Jackson response like in Pulp Fiction. Oh, well, allow me to retort. The UK takes a much more reserved, a much more conservative approach. And this comes out of their Council on Bioethics. They actually recommend against the use of non-invasive prenatal tests to check for things that are, quote, of less significant medical 
impairment condition, end quote. In other words, hey, this is not going to cause a major life-altering issue. Um, yeah, they may be, again, kind of taller. They may have some, maybe a little learning difficulty, but it's not a big major health issue. So the UK, this comes out of the Nuffield Council on Bioethics, they actually say you really shouldn't be looking for sex chromosome aneuploidy unless there's a really a big need for it, not just as a gender reveal test, okay? So that council specifically recommends, quote, that NIPS providers not offer sex determination of fetuses unless there is concern that the fetus may be showing signs of a significant sex chromosome abnormality or is at risk of a sex-linked disorder, end quote. So the UK, again, much more reserved and kind of says pump the brakes here, Unlike the others, I kind of give it a nod and say, okay, if you're going to do it, do it. I just know its limitations. They say, no, not a gender reveal toy. And that's only reserved for some very specific uh, sex-linked conditions. In line with the UK's info, the European Society of Human Genetics also recommends against reporting of sex chromosome abnormalities in non-invasive prenatal tests. So what's the take-home here from listening to these different organizations? Um, If you're going to do it, know what you're doing. That's basically it. I do get, as I mentioned it all in disclosure, I do get this. And the vast majority of the time, it's going to come out 46XY or 46XX. Um, And we're good. I mean, the accuracy of that is is phenomenal. But when it's a no result or it's something off, just have the proper counseling in place. Send them on. And that's, as we wrap this up, that's what we did with our patients. So we brought her in um, actually today and we, we went through all of this that the vast majority of the time, something like a no call result like this is absolutely fine. There's no overt abnormality seen on ultrasound. Uh, And thankfully, it read a result for 13, 18, and 21, which was low risk. But we can't leave you there. So, of course, we gave the patient the option, at least speak to the genetic counselor. Um, The level two, that's already a checkbox. And consider, think about uh, diagnostic testing, which, again, she can decline, but it's the right thing to do. So you got to keep going. But the take-home, the last clinical pearl is, while it's okay, as we mentioned earlier, to repeat a self-re-DNA test for a no result one time, especially if it's because of a low fraction, you cannot, it is not advised to do that with a no-call result or an indeterminate result on anything sex chromosome abnormality. That is a hard stop. All right, let's bring this to a close. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. I'm so happy I got through this because, look, the data is legit. I mean, we've gone through the uh, data. We've gone through the uh, data banks. We've gone through PubMed. We've gone through Google search, um, Medline, and we've double referenced everything. We've made sure all the what we've stated is correct. Now, I'm not worried about that. I just was afraid of going somewhere left field because Benadryl on board. But I don't think I did so. I just with what I'm supposed to do on my script and my outline. So anyway, I hope you found this helpful. Um, As always, thank you so much for your messages, like our message today from uh, Australia. So, so encouraging to me. All right, guys, as always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.